Welcome to the 146th episode of Reverse Threat Radio. I'm Andy Ryan. And I'm Toby Chad. It's 10 years to the day since a part of all four innings of the Australia-South Africa Test match took place, a first in Test cricket history. Welcome to the podcast that wonders why were they in such a rush? Remind me of what that what that game was. I have vague memories of it. It was completely bonkers. So Australia made a decent first inning score. South Africa were then skittled for 96. They then skittled Australia for 47. And they then chased down the winning runs very comfortably. Um, it was mostly all about Vernon Philander, who ended with completely absurd figures. Right. It's one of those times when Philander absolutely ran amok as he as he was was wont to do um so in this episode of reverse swept radio we are um well andy's going to be telling us about the first six in the history of test cricket which feels timely with the 2020 world cup um firing sixes all over the uh, all over dubai and abu dhabi and we're going to go back to the beginning of all of that uh, we're also going to be reviewing a podcast called sports strangest crimes alan stanford the man who bought Cricket, a podcast that was um, hot off the press, if that's the right term for podcasts, in September 2021. As ever, um, please do leave a review over wherever you listen to your uh, podcast and hop over onto Twitter at Reverse Swept to uh, share your opinions um, with us at any time. Um, Andy, you have been admiring a county stalwart. Yes, so it's one of the familiar sights of a day out at Lords. I mean, it has been since 2007, is to see Tim Murta coming in from the nursery end. And it's so familiar that those words, Tim Murta from the nursery mm. end, from an announcement, are kind of at some point emblazoned in my brain. Um, and we found out this week that uh, cricket lovers, Middlesex fans, are going to get another year of it. He signed a contract for another year, so the 40-year-old Irish seamer will play on next season. I've always enjoyed watching him, a swing bowler who seems a complete master of his craft. And his longevity is interesting because he pushed himself to make sure that he got to play for Ireland. He got to play test cricket, crucially for Ireland. It had already had a career with them before that. And you think there's that Jimmy Anderson crossover where you have someone who relies on guile rather than express pace. So he's been able to keep going. But I think there's something about the psychology as well as the biology in that he clearly still loves the game, still wants to keep playing. And I found it particularly interesting in the context of a Middlesex team that were completely dismal last year. Mm. And you, you wonder if a part of you would say, no, no, t- time to put the feet up. But no, there's none of that. I should also say, possibly the best nickname in county cricket, the Hitchcockian Dial M. Dial M. I'd never, I never knew that, and that is, yeah, I'd love to find out who actually came up with that along the way. It's interesting that that comment you made about um, whether he might have retired on the back of a horrendous Middlesex season last year, but maybe actually the opposite is true, and he's kind of thinking, you know, after a long career, he doesn't want his last season to be one that's been defined by sort of collective team failure. But it is an interesting question. At the age of forty, your body, you know, even though he's not someone who bowls express pace and clearly he has a very repeatable action and an action that's very sort of sustainable, as a forty year old, you have to put yourself through a lot I imagine to play a, you know the number of overs that he would have to bowl in the county season I can't think of any other seamers still playing in world cricket now or actually I can't think sort of historically off the top of my head of, of seamers who have continued bowling at that um no, at that age 
it's interesting with um, Anderson because we know that he is a bit of a fitness freak, you know, takes his body very, very seriously as I guess professional sportsmen should do. And I don't know whether that's true with Murta as well, but uh, there clearly is also something impressive about still going in the county championship. I mean, there are a certain number of bowlers who've been able to extend their career quite reasonably by mm-hmm. just playing on in 2020. Um, you know, we saw that a few years ago with someone like Muralitharan, who I think kept going in 2020 quite a while yep. after he'd, he'd given up the first class game. Um, you've been looking at, well, fingers crossed on this one, because I think this has been a promised return that, that has been let down a few times, but uh, hopefully a, a a return that will be good news for all of cricket. Yeah, so watching um, the 2020 World Cup currently playing, taking place in Abu Dhabi and uh, Dubai kind of made me reflect on the fact that, you know, we've seen a lot of cricket out of that part of the world recently. And in a way, that's been a, you know, a good story. There have been, um, you know, countries there that have hosted international cricket uh, recently um, as a recent development. But the other side of that, of course, is that the reason that there has been so much cricket there is um, because there hasn't been cricket in, in Pakistan because of the security concerns. And so Pakistan's cricket has been has been played in, in Abu Dhabi and um, and Dubai. Um, it's actually been over a decade since um, test cricket has been played in, in Pakistan. There was a one-off rained-off game against Zimbabwe in, in 2015. And then, of course, earlier this year, there was that quite... Um, I mean, there was that news of the of the very late cancellation of both the England and New Zealand tours of of Pakistan, and it was kind of difficult to know quite what was behind that. You know, the the, the official line was that it was security concerns, but it felt like there might have been something else going on, sort of behind the scenes. So, so it was particularly good that um, to see uh, this week Australia announced that they were going to tour Pakistan to play um, a handful of tests some ODIs and some T20s um, next year and I suppose I mean as, as we record um, news, news just in that the Pakistan have just been beaten by Australia in the semi-final of the T20s but Pakistan getting that far in the way they have played I think has been a real reminder of how important it is to have a strong Pakistani team on the you know on the international stage and I've always wondered how long the game can be expected to flourish in Pakistan while no international cricket is played within their borders it feels like you know in terms of the development of the game that that is going to severely severely stunt it so it's just great to see australia kind of taking taking the lead here and actually stating their intention to go back to pakistan when it would actually have been quite easy for them in a way to continue playing pakistan in uh, in in the middle east so as you say let's just let's just hope that it comes off so Australia very much the leaders on this. England have also said they will go later next year. I, I think we just have to see the, the commitment being actually followed through here. I completely agree with your point that it starts to starve a country, you know, a cricketing nation, if you just cannot see your team playing on, on, on home territory. Um, and I think that also becomes a point where what made so many people I think so very upset about the England and New Zealand cancellations was it seemed to reinforce this idea of the haves of the game treating yes. the have-nots with disdain. It's the two-tier um, thing. It's the two-tier, you know, it's the kind of traditional power owners of the game versus a, you know, in some sense emerging nation. Well, a nation that's only existed for 60 or 70 years. Um, and yeah, exactly. It kind of reinforced that power balance and imbalance, didn't it? <laughs> From the 
the archives and in this the 146th episode of reverse swept radio andy is going to be telling us about the wonderfully named cricketer joe darling but what's great about this feature is it not only features a wonderful cricketer called joe darling it also features the subject of the first ever six in the history of test cricket He's a headline writer's dream, isn't he? You could think it really of the, is. the various darling headlines. Almost as um, good as Graham Onions, but get them on the same team and we could really go somewhere. Darling by name, daring by nature. That would be, that's what I'd go with. Uh, it's January the 14th, 1898, and we're in Adelaide. It's the third test of the Ashes and it's one all. Your Aussie captain and opener, Joe Darling, is on 98 and he's facing England spinner, Johnny Briggs. And he's about to do something that no one's ever done. Test cricket. He launches the delivery over the square leg boundary, over the eastern gate, and into a car park. It's the first six in the history of Test cricket. So, hang on. So, when you say he's about to do something that that no one has ever done before, what bit of that had never been done before? And actually, hang on. How, how much Test cricket had been played by this by this point? I mean, we've got a few decades of Test cricket under our under our belt by this point, haven't we? So, it's an interesting one because. In terms of years, we're talking about 21 years. It's important to recognise, though, that at this point, the Test Club is pretty tiny. We've got England, Australia and South Africa as well, although still not playing a a huge number. I think South Africa joined in the late 1880s. Well, when you had to spend three months on a ship going to every single one of those (laughs) matches, they're geographically inconvenient for, you know, for frequent encounters, aren't they? Um, yes, and I think this is sometimes when we talk about spreading the game, this this was a point where yes, this this was a trio who were were, were quite content with their their elite. Yeah, they wanted club. to keep it as small as possible. Um, very helpfully, actually, all Test matches are, are diligently labelled by number, and this was Test match number fifty-five. Right. So you know, it was still early days in Test cricket's history. In terms of it being something that had never been done before, this taught me something that I had not known about the rules of the game which is that it's not an incidental detail here that the ball ended up in a car park. It's not just, you know, nowadays when we see a ball go out to the ground, it's very satisfying for the batsman, very satisfying for the fans, but it's kind of by the by. But in cricketing rules at the time, if you wanted to hit a six, it had to go out the ground. And a hit over the boundary rope, but not out the ground, would count as five, which I confess I was never aware of. And presumably this depends very much, therefore, on local conditions i.e what what is the size of it? if you've got if you've got kind of you know grandstands around the ground it's going to be much harder to hit a six than if you've got you know one line of spectators sitting on the on the boundary and then and then nothing beyond that so presumably it's something that therefore depends completely on local conditions whether you're going to be hitting a six or not absolutely and, and i mean I, I wanted to what extent it ends up being disputed I mean, if I hit yeah, what is the, top the of a grandstand and it comes back in, I guess despite the height of that, I suppose if it comes back in, I haven't, I haven't cleared the ground. Presumably, at many venues, it, it, it was close to impossible. Hence, why it's taken a long time. Mm. It, it's always when you look at old rules and compare them to sort of new discussions about innovations in the game. It struck me that actually some of the discussions you hear. Uh, from time to time now, I, I must admit discussions that I'm not very sympathetic to about the idea that in T20 you could tweak the rules to reward uh, more than Longer just a sixes. six. Yeah. Exactly. So you know, this obsession that you get now that that six was 110 metres, could you six, give that yeah. eight yeah. or something? Yeah. Um, it was an interesting reminder that actually to some extent cricket's been there. It, it, it's done that. Um, what, despite this being a, a world first or a game first, 
there's no evidence that the batsmen of the time were striving to do this. There's no evidence of a race for the first six. I was very struck by the fact the Wisdom Match Report does praise Darling for his superb innings, but makes no mention of the landmark, which strikes me as odd, given its rarity. You know, this is the first six in 55 games. Mm. It seems mm. odd that it didn't attract any comment. I don't know whether that was just reflective of the fact that at this stage in the game, sixes were not, maybe not treated with the reverence that they are now. But then that's also strange because you think, well, it was even it was far harder They must be do. much rarer. Yeah, yeah, yeah rarer, so rarer it, and it, kind of harder to do. And I, and I wonder whether it would have been something that necessarily the, you know, maybe the scorers would have known about it, but would the crowd necessarily have known about mm. it with the journalists? If, you know, if it was completely new, if it was a law that had been there all along and it was, you know, would the umpires signal? I mean, did the umpire signal for it? Was that an established thing at oh, that point? <laughs> I was thinking exactly that, which is if it happens very rarely, was there a distinct signal? I haven't been able to find that out. We don't know amongst the people, the, the, the people we don't know who appreciated, we don't know if Darling appreciated it. I think what it does at least prove, and I'm, I'm pretty happy to go out on a limb on this, the fact that he did this on 98 to bring mm. up his 100 suggests that that um, feature of the game that we still have to this day of the batsman trying to bring up a century in style with a six was already established here in the late 19th century, mm. which I rather love, actually. I, I've always kind of liked that, um, although obviously it's the kind of thing that when it goes wrong and you get caught at long off and ends very badly. It has to be said, Darling was in the mood here. He, having set this record, he went on to hit two more en route to 178. Do we do we know how many fives he scored in this innings? I mean, was he kind of pinging it all all around the ground, and this one just happened to to go a couple of yards further and find the find the car park, or was this a kind of exceptional one off massive shot in his innings? So, so this is the other thing I found very confusing about having discovered this rule is that I've seen scorecards and obviously modern day scorecards that very much diligently break down sixes and fours that a batsman scored, and this is true actually for the scorecards of this era. I haven't seen one that includes fives. Um, which does feel like a you know, legitimate thing to, to have to have referred to. Mm-hmm. It was quick, um, certainly uh, quick by any standards, I think, but certainly quick by the standards of the day. I think it was a four hours, 15 minutes to make his 178, which is, you know, he was not, right. he yeah, was that's not messing around. He was on home turf, so he was Adelaide born and bred. And I did wonder, actually, there is probably an interesting feature to be done on the extent to which that breaking records on home turf. So I was thinking, for example, you know, Jeff Boycott famously getting his 100th mm. 100 at Headingley. Headingley yeah. I, I do wonder if there is a, a sort of psychological thing that certain players rise to the occasion or just feel more comfortable at home. There's a nice bit of family history here because a, a couple of decades before this, Darling's father, who's a politician, a member of the Legislative Council of South Australia, had inaugurated the ground. So there's a nice bit of continuity here that a couple of years later, a couple of decades later, his son would be leading Australia to success here. And do you have a sense of whether with this, with the kind of genie out of the bottle, whether everyone was then striving to hit hit sixes from, from then on? Was this the start of a deluge? So I, I'm not. One thing I was looking for was the number of sixes that England players scored. And there was not really a sense that the England players suddenly started hitting sixes back. Uh, sort of sort of saw him and said, "Oh, we must start doing that." So I don't. Th- I don't think it was right to say that it, it started a deluge. 
Although the fact that he managed three in the innings himself, what this mm. really needs, I think, is uh, some some close map research of the size of the Adelaide Oval at the time, because I wonder if, to some extent, this this boundary was a soft touch. Um, we don't have an exact record of the shot, but the fact that this went over the square leg boundary suggested a bit of a kind of heave ho. Although yep. I might be doing Darling a disservice. It wasn't a happy game for England at any rate. Uh, poor Johnny Briggs hit for this first six, would finish on one for 128. Australia would go on to win the test by an innings and 13 runs, and the Aussies would go on to win the series 4-1. And I couldn't help thinking that in the same way Australia winning the first ever test match, this is another test first and test milestone that belongs down under. <laughs> To the review, for this episode we've been listening to The Sports Strangest Crimes, Alan Stanford, The Man Who Bought Cricket, released by the BBC in September 2021. It's hosted by Greg James, who is a pretty present figure all over BBC Radio. He hosts BBC Radio 1 Breakfast Show and is a co-presenter of the cricket podcast Tailenders with Felix White and James Anderson. The podcast follows the story of Alan Stanford, which is one of those stories that every cricket fan, I think, looks back on as some sort of weird fever dream. And that this podcast gets you back in touch with those odd memories that you can't believe they they ever really happened. And it's a cricket podcast in the sense that it's a story about an extraordinary game, but it's also about far, far more than that. A gym empire in the US, a banking empire in the Caribbean, and then how it all came crashing down. What sort of a podcast is this toby the i mean i've been trying to think of exactly the right the right word to describe it but this is a very kind of upbeat it's a radio one breakfast show style style podcast which i have to say when when we when i started out listening to it um meant that i had my had my doubts whether i was going to get through all of the i think seven sort of 45 minute 45 minute episodes it's full of uh, we're too old wise... and cynical for the upbeat we, we are pretty one. we are pretty we are pretty pretty um pretty cynical when it comes to the number of kind of wise cracks and the sort of beat laden music that greg james introduces into the story however Having said that, it does always manage to stay kind of on on the right side, and I think that it's just that old thing of sort of you know radio craft and audio craft that all of the extra elements are very much in the service of of telling the um, of telling the story, and it ends up being very uh, very very um, listenable. It covers a lot of ground, as you say. It's about you know the cricket match. It's about Sir Alan Stanford landing on Lords with that perspex box full of you know however many. 11 million dollars and promising a game where 1 million dollars would go to each player in the winning in the winning side but actually the vast majority of the podcast is actually about Alan Stanford's um, business uh, business misdealings. Um, the other thing that I think is distinctive about it is the the kind of list of guests who who Greg James is able to um, able to pull. So he talks to you know players who played in the match like like uh, Luke Wright. He plays he talks to people who are involved in the whole kind of Stanford. Um, you know, sort of Stanford situation. Um, he talks to um, FBI agents as well, and there's this kind he of amazing. He's incredibly cast. excited to be talking to the FBI, isn't he? That that's clearly a person that comes back here. time and time again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the only circumstance under which which one would want to be talking to the FBI, probably. I'd, I'd agree with you. The range is very impressive, and he does a great job in getting people comfortable and talking. The only person really who's missing, and this isn't his fault, they clearly tried, is we don't get any Giles Clark or any of the decision makers at the ECB. No fault of 
BBC or Greg James, but it, it's a bit of a gap, isn't it? Just because you you hear a lot of people, the Jonathan Agnes, for example, who are able to say, look, I, I saw that this thing stung um, and are able to be quite, <laughs> sort of quite clear that they were not on board at the time. And we did need maybe, uh, it'd be interesting just to hear those voices of people who signed up. So, um, you know, hindsight is a wonderful thing. And looking back on it now, you're reminded again of how this thing just felt ridiculous at the time. But yet there were kind of complications there because Stanford was coming along promising significant amounts of money for the development of cricket in the Caribbean. This was also a time when, you know, the IPL and the ICL were were kicking off and English cricket didn't have that kind of big money equivalent for their players to um, to be able to dabble in. And suddenly Alan Stanford was there kind of providing all of the all of the answers. And I think Greg James does a good job in kind of balancing out those two perspectives rather than just saying oh everyone should have seen it for what it what it was at the same time um what do you think we learned about we learned kind of new about the kind of cricketing part of the of the story here about alan stanford's kind of dabbling in cricket it's not clear that he was fond of the game itself so no he seems he, to hate it he seems to be confused no, by it at all at he, all points and, and i particularly like there was a nice description of how annoyed he got when a bowler was marking his run-up yes. with his studs and Stanford was, was kind of saying why is You're that ruining, ruining my, turf. my pitch yeah. like stop him ruining my pitch I think trying to James as you say I think tries to balance this you know well and one point that is made and several of the West Indian players involved make this point that the money and we'll get into the the dubious origin of the money it made a real difference in the Caribbean and James makes the case that I think is quite compelling that you have a West Indies team that has won two 2020 World Cups, that has had its players have huge success in the IPL. And Stanford can claim a degree of credit for that. Part of the reason the game itself was dreadful was because the England players turned up, having done no preparation, slightly, I think, uncomfortable about the whole thing. The West Indians had been through a six-week training gap. You know, top coaches, top facilities... Um, so amongst the, the, the many moral failings, that there clearly was some sort of result here for West Indies cricket, however, however transient in some ways it was. I think the thing was, though, that, that Alan Stanford demanded that all of the money be spent on his terms and fundamentally mm-hmm. in order to make him look good. You know, there's that account of him going to one of the... Um, because obviously, as well as this one-off game between between England and the Stanford Super Series, there was a league that he started um, in uh, in the Caribbean. And he went to one of the games, and there was a young 19-year-old player, whose name I forget, who had been selected for the... I think the West Indies under 19 team and Stanford was furious that this this man had gone off and played in that and wasn't playing in Stanford's own league and so whilst all this money was being put in it wasn't one of those kind of you know gifts where you where you give the money and you go you guys know how to run the game you invest it how you want to that actually it was all about how do I make myself look as good and then there was any any cricketing benefit that fell out of that was kind of incidental in a way and that was the kind of house of cards that everyone was was playing with and it, I, th- I think it was the same for the England cricket board as well you know that they kind of went oh we want the money but we can't decide how to spend it so we're just going to take it despite all of the kind of strings that are attached to it and despite the fact that you know if, if England had really wanted 11 million dollars for their players would they really have done it with a you know a game a winner takes all kind of individual but I, individual I game think it well. was exactly coming back to your point about this is a time of the rise of the IPL and other leagues 
And it, it was an interesting example of how one mistake leads to another, as in England had failed despite having created the format or introduced the format professionally of T20, had failed to find a way to effectively monetize it. India and others had done a far better job. And suddenly, I mean, the panic, there's a sense of, you know, we must jump on the next shiny thing. I was intrigued to hear that the South African authorities, James suggests, had already said no to Stanford. Mm. So others had clearly seen him coming. I think this whole point about to what extent you can hold the ECB responsible is an interesting one. Clearly, many people had not uh, had not sussed Stanford. It was curious that the due diligence effectively extended to can he pay, which I thought was pretty revealing. Yes, um, but I not don't is this the right thing to do, but can he pay? Why, yep. exactly, and not sort of really prodding at it, but can he show us X amount in a bank account, which yep. clearly has its yep. limits. Yep. Now, I... this is part cricket podcast, but very soon this becomes, well, actually, I, I don't know what the percentage breakdown is. It, it is probably mostly an economic crime podcast. I guess this is one of the fun things about doing a cricket podcast that you get dragged into all these different areas. What did you make and, and learn about that side of things? So I, I will confess that I'd heard of Ponzi schemes, but I'd never 100% understood what a Ponzi scheme was. Um, and so I come out never, of this podcast. Never invested one? Well, no. this is the thing. I come out of this <laughs> podcast kind of knowing the skeleton of if I wanted to set up a Ponzi scheme, sort of how I do it and what I'd need to do to make it to make it work. So thank you, Greg James. It's amazing what cricket podcasts can do for your future financial health. Um, so I do, and I, and I kind of liked the... What sometimes slightly grated about his description of the cricket, which was that it's based for, you know, it's kind of designed for a non-cricket audience, um, was absolutely perfect for me when it came to the financial stuff, was it was designed for a non-financial audience. And so there was a kind of base level of knowledge that was not that was not assumed um, around that. So the Stanford kind of financial misdealing narrative, if you can call it that, goes all the way back from him, as you said at the top of the podcast, being a kind of small town gym owner in Texas through to him starting up banks in um, the Caribbean. And it is an extraordinary story. Um, and I was kind of quite, I feel quite glad to have, you know, kind of stumbled on it through this, um, through this, through this podcast. At the center of it all is Stanford, um, who is this kind of, he's a very compelling villain in the sense that he's a, he's a pretty, he's a pretty weird guy with a pretty kind of mucked up um character and he kind of consistently through the through the sort of story of his life it's him making kind of strange and and bad decisions that just keeps this whole thing going so Mm -hmm. it really is in a way the story of this kind of massively flawed guy with a massive ego and obviously an ability to kind of persuade people to come along with him on this on this particular journey the ego carried him a, a hugely long way I think it is very typical with all of these stories, and, and for example, the Bernie Madoff scandal is referenced in this as well. But the first thing we all ask is, how did it go on this long? And yeah. It does seem remarkable. But the thing that really struck me was when investigators end up interviewing their chief financial officer, who literally knows nothing about finance, yeah. and you think, how how has it been possible for them to get away? You would think, and I imagine, uh, I'm not offering any investment advice here, but I imagine many similar Ponzi schemes are run with people who actually do know quite a lot about finance and could give a good story. They, they weren't even in, in that position. This is a man who, when we get to the end of the podcast, is in front of a judge having just been found guilty and sent to prison effectively forever, and is still telling the judge that he's got it wrong, that he's some sort of victim. That the um, the chutzpah is 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 pretty well. It's it's chutzpah, but you also wonder whether he just truly 
believes that as well mm. that he truly believes that his, this this money is his and he truly believes that he has been you know doing the right thing because he's invested it in large inverted commas into cricket and into you know he builds hospitals and he builds airports and he basically kind of completely takes over you know Antigua to the extent that they say that he's kind of more powerful than the um than the prime minister but it's also the kind of naivety that he has things like apparently you know he takes a sort of super yacht and it's got four bedrooms on it and he decides that he's going to spend millions of dollars to change it to two bedrooms not realizing that a he's spending millions of dollars doing that and b he's reducing the value of the yacht considerably by doing that and so then when he tries to sell it he's just made a massive loss off the you know off the whole thing he's clearly someone who is so i don't know just so kind of blinkered and i think just a real believer in what he's you know in what he's doing in a way but the stories of excess are extraordinary the parties the yacht the building a castle in florida which he then pulled down it's uh, yeah. There are there are big themes in this, but there are also just plenty of uh, salacious anecdotes that are very enjoyable as well. I think we would hugely recommend it. It's I, I, perhaps the strongest recommendation I would give to it, which is was I, it was a podcast I approached with a little bit of trepidation because I actually wondered if the topic was one that would capture my interest, uh, and it was fascinating. Uh, and and yes, learned a huge amount. So that's sports, Spain, sports strangest crimes. Alan Stanford, uh, the man who bought cricket. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts, as they say, and it's it's perfect if you want to find out the the strange story of Alan Stanford and that and that kind of amazing uh, cricket match. Or if you want to build your own Ponzi scheme, it's kind of quite a good little guide about what to do and what not to do. Um, and that was the one hundred and forty sixth episode of Reverse Swept Radio. Thank you.